Morning, everybody. I love what I call preemptive applause. That's how you guys like clapped when I got up and I hadn't done anything yet. And uh, let me just tell you, if you knew the passage we're about to go through, you would not be clapping this morning. Um, I'm half joking. I'm only half joking. We've been in our series, Bizarre Bible. This is the final week of that series. And every single week we've given um, something of a content warning and kind of told you up front. I know Drew mentioned it at the beginning of service today, but if you came in after that announcement, I just want to let you guys know of all the weeks of this series, this is by far the heaviest one in terms of the content in the Bible story. And so, If you've got your your kids in here with you, it may be a week to consider taking them to kids' ministry. Um, Just be aware, you know, like I said, we say this kind of a warning every once in a while. This is one where I really mean it. I mean, this this story has strong, violent content, including sexual violence. Um, There's no explicit language or anything. We're reading it from Scripture, but just know that material is in there. So again, if you have your kids with you, or um, if you are particularly sensitive to that kind of thing, we just want you to have that heads up. Now, if, if you hear that, and your immediate response is like, okay, well then why are we like, why, why are we doing this story in church then? That gets to the heart of what the purpose of this entire series has been, which is to look at the very stories that are often brought out by opponents of Christianity or skeptics of Christianity to discredit the Bible as a reasonable or even in this, in the case of a story like today, a morally good thing. So stories like the ones that we're going to look at today are, and I'm not just saying this is a scare tactic, it's true. They absolutely will be brought to you, to your kids if you have kids when they're teenagers or in college. And these are the kind of stories that will be presented. And the skeptic will say, and, and I'm not putting like uh, bad motives in their heart. They, they may be genuinely convinced. Stories like this are in this book that you think of as your holy book. Like this is what your religion is based on. And if we're not prepared to discuss stories like this, then we're not going to be ready when they come at us in the world. And so it's not something we do every single Sunday, of course. There, the Bible's full of encouraging, beautiful things, as well as difficult stuff like this. But it is appropriate from time to time for us to explore stories like this, specifically so that our faith and confidence in the Bible is increased, and so that all of us are prepared to handle these kind of accusations when they come at us. So, Having said all that, we're going to dive into Judges chapter 19. It's a fairly long story. Um, we're going to go through it kind of quickly and then spend the majority of our time talking about it. But again, just know as we go into this, this is, um, this is strong stuff. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and she was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. So there's a few kind of important things establishing where we are and who we're talking about in this story. It starts by saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Mark that, because that will be important later. But right here, it, it introduces you to the time period we're in. So if they're in Israel and there's no king yet, that means we are between the events of books like Exodus and Joshua, the rescue from Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, and going in to take the promised land, were between that and the books of Samuel and Kings, where you get King Saul, the Davidic kingdom, and uh, the King Solomon, and all the stuff we've been talking about in some of our more recent series. So this is between that time. 
So Israel is in the promised land, but as of yet, there's no king. This is what's known as the period of the judges. We'll talk more about that later as well. We also meet kind of our main characters in the story. The character at the center is a Levite. That means he's from the tribe of Levi. This is the priestly tribe of Israel. This is a guy who um, him and his family and the tribe he's a part of are called to represent God. We talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that Levites didn't have land as an inheritance And that's because the scripture says the Lord is their inheritance. So they have this special job of of representing God and kind of mediating between God and the rest of the people of Israel. Now, on the surface, there might be some stuff that jumps out at you as being kind of weird. Like you you might immediately go like, why does this Levite have a concubine? But if you just are reading it quickly on the surface, you kind of see what looks like a a nice story so far. Like, okay, this guy's wife, concubine, the story calls her both, which is interesting. She's unfaithful to him, and she goes to her father's house. And so he leaves his tribe, goes to Judah, says he speaks kindly to her to bring her back. And her and her father receive him gladly, and it seems like everything's forgiven and everyone's reconciled. If you're familiar with the Bible, you're like, oh, I've seen this pattern before, like unfaithful wife, husband who goes and forgives her and speaks kindly to her and brings her back. So far, so good. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. When the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart, and wait until this day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here. Let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. Pause for a second. So if that strikes you as kind of weird, it's, it's supposed to. He goes speaks kindly to her, brings her back. They stay for three days. It's like there's a ton, the hospitality being shown here is really great. And then you get this weird back and forth where the guy keeps trying to leave. And the father-in-law keeps saying, oh, stay one more day. And so he stays. And then, oh, stay the night. Don't leave in the evening. That happens until the fifth day. And even then when he tries to leave, the father-in-law's like, no, stay today. And then stay tonight because now it's nighttime. And so you have this um, picture of what I think is supposed to be excessive hospitality. So hospitality in the ancient Near Eastern world is is incredibly important, just like it is in that same part of the world today. You are hospitable to your guests, even strangers. And so he welcomes him in, but it it feels excessive. And I think that's setting you up for what's going to come a little later. And part of the effect of that in the story is it, it builds, at least for me, hopefully it's doing this for you as well, it builds this kind of tension and this sense of like urgency. He's like, he keeps trying to leave. Some of you have been in conversations like this, that uh, they just, they feel like they're five days long, even if they're not. And you're, you're trying to leave and you keep getting pulled back in. This is a five-day situation where he wants to go, but he's not. And so then when he finally leaves, and this is important, you have this sense of urgency and he leaves at night. And traveling at night, not a good idea in general, and especially not in the ancient world. So he rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, 
And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. Now, it might seem weird to you because they called it Jerusalem, but remember, this is before David is king. When David's the king, he's going to take over Jerusalem from the Canaanites who live there. But at this point in history, there are still Canaanites living in Jerusalem. So these Jebusites are not from Israel. And so it's night, and the servant says, hey, it's night. We shouldn't be traveling out here at night. Let's go and sleep in the Jebusite city. And the Levite says, kind of ominously, no, no, no. We can't go there. we got to get into the territory of Israel where we'll be safe. you got to imagine he's thinking, I'm a Levite. If we can get into Israel, then you know what? We'll be in there, and they'll show me the kind of honor and respect that is due to somebody who like, represents God in their midst. So we can't go into like the pagan Canaanite city. We've got to get into Israel. It might be dangerous if we were to stay with the Jebusites. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took him into his house to spend the night. Now this is the point where any ancient reader of the text knows there is something seriously wrong in this story. When he goes and he goes into the city in Israel, he's in Gibeah, and no one takes him in. Everybody's alarm bells would immediately go off. Like if you're watching a horror movie, this is the part where the music changes. And you go like, something's, something's going on here. Like I said a second ago, in the ancient Near Eastern world, just like in the Middle East today and many other cultures today, to show hospitality to the stranger, to the, the traveler, is like the highest moral value. You do not, you would never let somebody sleep out in the town square. Some, people should be clamoring to let this Levite stay with them. So it's very, very strange. And again, keep in mind, he just bypassed the Jebusite city because he wants to get into Israel, where he'll be treated well. Now he's in Israel, in a city in the tribe of Benjamin, and no one's allowing him to stay with them. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at the evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, what are you doing, and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the, remote part, to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. Now, every detail in this paragraph is like meant to just make sure you understand what's going on. First of all, the two things we learn about the guy who finally welcomes him in is that one, he's old, which means he's not part of the current generation of Israelites. He's from a past generation. And secondly, he's a foreigner. Now, he's an Israelite, and he's in Israel, but he's an Ephraimite from the tribe of Ephraim, who's in Benjamin in Gibeah. So you have a guy who's kind of not from this time and not from this place. That's who finally welcomes him in. And then the Levite goes, like, goes out of his way to say things that highlight the wrongness of what's happening. He goes, I'm on my way to the house of the Lord, you know, where the Levites represent the people of Israel before Yahweh, but no one has taken me into his house. And so this guy finally says, come stay with me. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. 
This just heightens the scandal of the fact that no one will let him in, by the way, because he's telling the old man, we have, like, we don't even need food. We've got all our own stuff. We just need a place to stay. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. And if the story stopped here, it would be great. You go, okay, finally, somebody's taking care of this guy. The hospitality's not dead in Benjamin. Everything's fine. But this is where the story really turns dark. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, it's, it's very clear in the context, but just so that everyone understands, when the Hebrew word to know is used in this way, it is a sexual euphemism. They don't want to get to know him. They're threatening sexual violence against him. Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So there's like a second where the old man seems like he's going to be righteous. He's the one person who welcomed him to his house. And then when the people come and threaten this like despicable act against a Levite, he goes like, no, 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 don't do, don't do this. This man's my guest. You want to talk about excessive hospitality. The second half of the sentence is, no, here's my virgin daughter. Take her instead. This is, this is horrific, evil. And here's the thing, like, up till this point, everyone keeps proving themselves to be horrible, but like the Levite is the one guy who so far seems okay. Like he went, spoke kindly to his concubine, brought her in, he's forgiven her, he's trying to take her home, and so maybe, maybe like he'll be the one who actually does what's right here. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. This guy sends her out to receive all of the violence that was threatened against him. And in the morning, like, look at the callousness of this. It says he woke up. Wakes up, like, he just went to bed. Wakes up in the morning and opens the doors of the house. And when he sees her lying on the floor, what he says, and, it's, and by the way, it's like, it's harsher and shorter in Hebrew than it even is in English. Get up. But she's dead. And there's all this stuff in here that's like, a, they're like, symbolically upside down on purpose. Like it's dawn is breaking. You have like the morning rising. She's at the threshold of the house. All these things that are supposed to promise like new beginnings in life and goodness. And instead it's like, like horrific violence and betrayal. And it immediately makes you wonder, and this is, this is speculation, but did this guy actually forgive her? 
He spoke kindly to her to get her back. Get up. All right, one more slide. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. By the way, it doesn't get better after that. Like what you would hope happens is that like the tribe of Benjamin is going to hear about this because they receive you know, a piece of this dismembered woman, and they're going to say like, oh, we're going to punish the guys in Gibeah. This, isn't going to, this kind of thing can't happen in Benjamin. But they do the exact opposite. They back those guys up, and Benjamin goes to war with the rest of the tribes of Israel. And the war that follows is so devastating that Benjamin, the tribe, is almost completely wiped out. So it leads to civil war. So you read a story like this with like this vivid, horrible detail and go like, why on earth is this in the Bible? Like you could kind of feel sympathetic to the skeptic who comes with the Bible and goes like, hey, have you actually read your own holy book? Let's read a story, Judges 19. And then read it and go, that's your God? Like this is your, your religion's based on this book? Even if it was true, there's no way I would believe that. You kind of understand where somebody would get that notion. And hence the purpose of this whole series. Because we believe the entire Bible was written and assembled and, and these stories are chosen and selected under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They are all there on purpose. And if they're understood correctly, they're not just coherent and reasonable, but they're actually there to teach us something. And so you've got to do what we're doing today and go, what is the point of including a story like this? There's a couple steps we have to take to answer that. Um, the first one involves just revisiting a basic tenet of biblical interpretation. And then with that in mind, we're going to actually look at the context that the story happens in to try to understand why it's here. But first, there's this really important thing. We talked about it early in the series, but it's worth mentioning again with a story like this. And that's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive biblical texts. They're exactly what they sound like. The Bible contains two kind of broad categories of writings. Some of them are prescriptive, which means they are prescribing a certain action for you. They're telling you explicitly what you should do or what you should not do. The other kind, and the vast majority of Old Testament narratives are like this, are descriptive. They're just telling you what happened. And the thing is, this is what Isaac talked about a few weeks ago. When you read a descriptive text, it's gonna tell you a true story, but that story might be horrible. And the biblical author might not be commending it to you as something to imitate, but he might be presenting it as something that's horrible on purpose. And the challenge is the Old Testament authors, the way the literature works, they're not going to necessarily tell you that that's what they're doing. So they're not going to say, you know, well, Sarah gave Abraham Hagar to go have a baby with, and that was bad. Like, that's how you'd like it to work, right? But a lot of the time, it's subtle. Now, here's the thing. Let me give you an example just so you can see, like, most of the time when this happens, you don't even have to think about it. You just interpret it the right way automatically. So top verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Prescriptive. Paul is telling you what to do. He's telling the church in Thessalonica, encourage your fellow Christians. And he's telling us the same thing. That's a prescriptive text. Very easy. 
Exodus 32, this is about Aaron making the golden calf. It says, and he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Prescriptive or descriptive? That's descriptive. Is that text telling you that you should go build a golden calf and worship it? Like, no, right? And that's that example so obvious, you don't even have to think about it. You know Israel is doing something bad. And by the way, the author doesn't have to stop and say, and Aaron should not have made a golden calf. And the people of Israel shouldn't have worshipped idols, you guys, because just 12 chapters ago, God said, don't do that. The authors of the Bible assume that you are intelligent and that you're reading and thinking and considering and drawing conclusions from the stories themselves. That's how they're supposed to work. So sometimes it's complicated. Like, for example, um, in the book of 2 Samuel, there's a story where David, who's the king at that time, it says all, it's the time of the year when all of the kings go out to war with each other, which has just always been kind of hilarious to me as a modern person. I'm like, oh, I guess there's a time of year when that happened. But David doesn't go. This is the time of the year when the kings go out, but David doesn't go. Now, the author doesn't say, and that was bad, and bad stuff's going to happen. He just tells you, and you're supposed to take note of that and keep reading. Now, if you're familiar with that part of the Bible, what ends up happening during that time period? Bathsheba. That's right. This is the story where David, when he's at home, not out at battle with his armies, he ends up committing adultery with a woman, and then to cover his tracks, he has her husband murdered. It's David's greatest sin. And so the Bible does not have to say in that, in that case, and see, that's why David should have been out with his armies. The authors are assuming that you're reading and paying attention and that you're going to watch what happens. Same thing, like I said a second ago, with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. God told Abraham and Sarah, even though you're old and you haven't had children, I'm going to bless you with a child. And they believe him. But then when time is dragging on, Sarah says, you know what, let's, why don't you have a baby with one of our female servants? Again, you're not going to get the author saying, and Abraham should not have done that. You just read and go, what, watch what happens. It leads to horrible outcomes in his family. Same thing with David. David's situation leads to the death of that child, to his family falling apart, and ultimately, we talked about this in our last series, the kingdom of Israel splits in half over this. And so, there's great wisdom in this way of telling stories. It just requires us to read them differently. You're not going to get like a moral lesson handed to you. You have to read and reflect. And when you do, the stories go down deep and operate on you in a level that like a straightforward prescription often doesn't do. So for example, the Bible says prescriptively, don't commit adultery. But it also tells you a story of David and Bathsheba that if it's deep in your bones, you will know intuitively this is the kind of thing that follows from that behavior. And so the Bible is operating at that level often. So just like your history book is going to have stories about the Holocaust and it's not trying to tell you that was a good thing, the Bible is full of true stories that are horrible but the Bible knows they're horrible. So the kind of simplest, just apologetic tool when you're presented with a story like this, even before you do the work to interpret it and understand it, which you should do, step one is to be able to confidently say, the Bible, of course, has horrible stories and it's telling you like a true history of God and his people. There's all kinds of horrible stuff in there. It's not commending that to you. So, That kind of answers one question, but it immediately raises another question, which is, all right then, so like, why is this story in here? Why this horrible story with all this like grotesque detail? And to start to answer that, you got to understand the book of Judges, which it's a part of. 
The book of Judges is named for the kind of tribal chieftain type leaders that Israel has during this period before they have kings. So this is after, again, I said this earlier, but it's after the people of Israel have been rescued from Egypt, they've been brought through the wilderness wanderings, and Joshua has brought them into the promised land. After that, they have these leaders called judges. And you don't want to think like, you know, black gown, gavel, Judge Judy, like deciding court cases. These judges are like military political leaders who God raises up to deliver his people. Now, if you've read the book of Judges, let me ask you, are the judges paragons of virtue? The answer is no, (laughs) very much not. Now, here's an important detail. Judges, like I just said, Joshua brings the people into the land of Israel. And one of the things that God says to the people over and over again during that period of time is, when you get to the promised land, you have to drive out all the Canaanites. And here's why. If you don't drive them out and you move in next to them, you're going to start worshiping their gods and doing all the evil, horrible stuff that they do. That warning happens over and over again in Joshua, and the people are like, got it, no problem. Judges chapter 1 starts the book off by giving you like a catalog of all the Canaanite peoples that Israel failed to drive out of the land. So what happens is, instead of driving them out, they just move in right next to them. That's why, by the way, when the Levite and his concubine are traveling, they pass by the city of Jerusalem, and it's full of Canaanites, because the people of Israel failed to drive them out as they were supposed to. So it starts with this ominous note of like, God said, if you left these people here, you would become just like them. And that's what happens. And so the book of Judges is built around these seven cycles of judges. And each time, this, each time the cycle happens, it's exactly the same. The people of Israel are idolatrous and evil and sinful. And so God punishes them by having the nations around them come and have military victories over them and, and oppress them. So they cry out for help to the Lord. And the Lord hears them and sends a judge to rescue them. The judge delivers them and saves them, and they tell God, thank you for saving us. We'll never do that again. And then they do the exact same thing again, seven times. And here's the thing. That cycle happens seven times in Judges, but it's not really like this. It's more like this. Does that make sense? Israel and their judges get worse and worse each time. The judges start out kind of okay, and then they're kind of dubious and sketchy, and then by the end, they're just full on, like, they're just evil people. And God, this is part of the point of judges, God will still use them to deliver his people, but like the judges are terrible and the behavior of Israel on their watch is terrible. So one after another, you just have Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. I can't believe I remembered all seven just now, by the way. That was, that was like a high wire act starting that. Um, <laughs> but they, do, they get worse and worse. And so here's the point. Did you notice, by the way, as we read, No judges in the story we read today. We read a whole chapter of judges, no judge. The seven judges, their cycle ends at the end of chapter 16, and the section that we're in is like a postscript to the whole book. So here's why all that matters. By the time you're reading Judges 19, you are at the bottom of Israel's seven-part cycle down into moral depravity. This is Israel at the absolute bottom of the barrel. And so the section is introduced with a phrase that we saw in our story too. Judges 17 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I told you a second ago, Old Testament authors very rarely tell you like, and that was bad, and this guy did a bad thing. That's about as close as you get. If the author tells you everyone in Israel does what's right in their own sight, you should expect horrible behavior. So the section starts with that. Then at the beginning of 18, you get the same thing. In those days, there's no king in Israel. 
That's another horrible story. Then our story, Judges 19, starts with the exact same phrase, in those days when there's no king in Israel. And then the entire book ends. 21-25 is the last verse of the book of Judges. So the book ends by saying, again, bracketing the way the section started, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges is documenting the downfall of a people who have drifted from their king. And the story we read today is the absolute bottom of the barrel. This is as bad as it gets. So that's a big part of why the story is so horrible. But there's something else. This story was chosen in particular and told in a particular way with all the details we saw because it's trying to evoke a memory of a specific, much, much older story from Israel's history. When the people of Israel read this story, they were supposed to immediately think of a story of Abraham that we have in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19 takes place, you know, a little less than a thousand years before the story we read today. And in it, Abraham, who has left his family and his kindred and he's established in a new area, he's there with his nephew Lot. Abraham sets up shop next to a couple of horrible, immoral cities called Sodom and Gomorrah, famous for how evil they are. Lot moves into the city of Sodom with his family. Abraham gets visited by, by God himself and to tell him, I'm going to bring judgment on Sodom because of their great evil. And so there's, there's some interesting stuff that happens that we don't have time to talk about, but suffice it to say, at the end of that, two angels go down into Sodom to render judgment on Sodom. And here's just a couple of the details of what happened when they get there. They go into Sodom, and they have to sleep in the town square. Nobody invites them into their house. Sound familiar? Yeah, of course it does. So then what happens? Lot, a foreigner who's not from there, finally comes out and goes, come stay with me, just don't sleep out here, exactly like the old Ephraimite in our story said. And so he brings the angels into his house. The men of the city surround the house and say, send those two foreigners out so that we might know them. Exactly the same thing as the Judges 19 story. And Lot says, no, don't do this evil thing. Instead, take my two virgin daughters. It's like beat for beat, the exact same story. And there's way more overlap than that, especially in the original language. Now, the difference is because these are two like messengers of God, they're able to blind all of the men and lead Lot and most of his family out to rescue before the city is destroyed. But from that point on, Sodom becomes like, it's like a word that you can use just to summarize the whole idea of human wickedness. And if you've read the Bible, you know that, Old Testament and New Testament. If you say, if you like evoke the city of Sodom, you're just talking about horrible human evil. Like Sodom equals humans being evil. So here's the thing, every detail of Judges 19 is laid out in a calculated way so that you see all of those Genesis 19 points playing out again. And the whole point is, when a Jewish person heard or read that story, they came away knowing at the end of the book of Judges, Israel has become Sodom. The thing that happened in the most wicked city of all time, now it's happening in Gibeah, in Benjamin. So what does it look like when Israel's at the bottom, when there's no king in the land, when everyone does what's right in their own eyes? Israel becomes Sodom. So why is the story told that way? To let you know this is what happens when a people drift from their king. Now Judges keeps telling you there's no king in the land, 
And there's two reasons for that. One is they're trying to anticipate the Davidic kingship that's going to happen next. Because we're just a couple stories away from getting King David. A couple books away, rather. But there's another thing that you're supposed to think of when you hear that there's no king in Israel. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, who is supposed to actually be the king of Israel? God himself. Over and over again, through their rescue from Egypt, through the wilderness wanderings, God says, I am your king. Yahweh is your king. You don't need a human king like the nations because I am king in your midst. He says stuff like that over and over again. In fact, later in 1 Samuel, when the people want a human king, the thing Samuel will tell them is, this is a wicked thing you guys are asking for because you have a king and it's God himself. And so the whole point here is, yeah, we're supposed to anticipate that a king is going to come and make Israel better. But even more than that, we're supposed to see these people have drifted from the king that they had. And the king they had was God. It's a Levite, right? The guy who symbolizes God's presence in their midst. The guy who represents God. And they've drifted so far from their king that behavior that would have been considered to be like despicable and vile beyond belief is just totally normal in Benjamin. And so, for you and me, we have to ask, isn't that kind of a, a look in the mirror for you as a modern Christian? Like, who's the head of the church? It's not a pastor. Who's the head of the church? Christ. Jesus is your king. The king of the church is Jesus. And so the story you get in Judges 19 is this, this image of what happens when the people collectively drift from their king. It's not like a story of a couple of Israelites being bad. It's this is what happens to the whole people when you drift from the king. And so what you need to realize is even though our culture is like crazy individualistic and we just think about ourselves, you're part of a people. You're actually part of several different people depending on how you think about it. But like at the end of the day, most of us in the room, not everybody, but most of us in the room are Western evangelical Christians. That's the tradition you're a part of. Some of you guys are from other states. Some of us are Californians. Some of us are Americans. Some of us are from other countries. We have all these different kind of layers. But at the end of the day, what we are prone to do is evaluate our behavior against other people who are a part of our group. And so you don't stop and think, what does the king say about this? You stop and go, what's everybody else do? Am I worse than everybody else or basically the same? And I'm convinced that what has happened in Israel by the end of Judges, a version of that happens within our churches, within evangelical Christianity as a whole, to where instead of evaluating our behavior against Scripture, we have things that have crept in to the behavior of Christians that are seen as completely normal, that the king has explicitly told us, flee from this kind of stuff. And so I'm not talking about like, like the obvious sins that make you feel convicted and guilty. I'm talking about the stuff that you don't even like bat an eye at. Isaac talked a couple weeks ago about how easy it is to lie. How frequently do we just lie and not even consider the fact that we're called to be honest, that lying is a sin against God? The other thing that came to mind this week is, is how common gossip and slander is. You know, the New Testament talks about that a lot. The king's been pretty clear. His people don't slander and gossip each other. But you guys know, like, any group hanging out is just sort of like, let's identify who's not here so we know who we're all talking about. You know what I mean? And if you don't think that's funny, then you're, like, you're the one. No, I'm just kidding. 
That's why you always have to hang out with everyone all the time. Um, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like, like how much of your speech to your friends, to your spouse, to your family is just made up of slandering other people? It's just normal. You don't even feel guilty about it. That's what happens when you drift. Or how about the things that you are, that you are like regularly watching and taking in? The stuff you just put before your eyes. And again, I want to be clear. I don't, I'm not just talking about like pornography or pornographic books. Those things are, are sins against God. But most of us are at least aware that they're sins and we're, we should be wrestling against it, trying to kill that stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that you don't even blink at. It's the TV shows and movies and books that we take in all the time. You could get together with a Christian small group and discuss a TV show you're all watching that this book would be like, you guys, Christians don't do this. We don't watch this. This is the kind of drift that happens if you evaluate yourself according to the standards of the culture that you're a part of instead of the king and his teaching. When the people drift from the king, all kinds of stuff creeps in that looks and seems normal. And so there's a stern warning in this story that you should not, number one, do what's right in your own eyes. Don't make yourself the one who evaluates what you're doing. And two, don't just look to the people around you and go, well, everybody else seems okay with this. You definitely shouldn't do that with just like, you know, California in 2023. You also shouldn't do that with evangelical Christians. All of us collectively need to be seeking the will of the king. This is why at South Valley, like, we're committed to teaching Bible every Sunday. And, and it's not enough just to get that on Sunday mornings. We ought to be reading and in small groups and studying it. But it's why, like, if, if we preach through a text, we're preaching all of it. We're not going to skip the parts of 1 Corinthians that make you go like, oh, I'd rather not talk about that in church. You guys think I woke up this morning thrilled to read this story to you guys? I mean, seriously, this, would, like, this is something that I, I dreaded this week because it's awful. But you go, we got to take the full counsel of Scripture to heart. So we're not going to shy away from that, and you shouldn't either. And so the last thing I want you to do is leave here going like, oh, everything's horrible, and I'm just horrible, I give up. Like, the point is, you go, we, individually and collectively, have got to be rooted and grounded in the king and his teaching. And if you do that, if this is the source against which you evaluate the way you live, you will grow in closeness to God. It's not to make you feel bad or to make your life miserable. It's the opposite. It's to give you life abundantly. And so don't become a person who does what's right in their own sight because there's no king in your midst. Now, that's one of the reasons why this story is here, I'm convinced. There's another one, and it's the big one. And it's the reason why every story is in the Bible. In this story, you see just how horrible somebody who's supposed to represent God can get. You got this Levite, and at first it's like, oh, I really want my concubine back. So he goes and he speaks kindly to her, and he takes her, and he's going to take her back home, and everything seems like it's going to be great. But does this guy actually love her and forgive her? What happens when push comes to shove? When his life is threatened? No, you go out and face the music. You go deal with it. You go take the suffering to protect me. There's no forgiveness. There's no love. There's no protection. This guy is a, a failure. He's a failure as a, as a man. He's a failure as a husband. He's a failure as a representative of God. He lets her take the suffering on his behalf. Is that the way God loves his people? 
So what you have in the story is actually the gospel in negative. You see it and you go, you should go as a Christian, oh, this is awful, what a nightmare. Thank God I have a better representative than this. Thank God there's a faithful husband who goes after his bride and speaks kindly to her and walks alongside her as a shepherd. And when push comes to shove, and when your soul is in peril, what does he do? Far from like pushing you out to face the music, he goes out and bears in his body the suffering and horror that humans are capable of inflicting on each other on your behalf, though he doesn't deserve it. See, that Levite may have been able to tell himself in his head, well, she's the one who, who is unfaithful. Punishment fits the crime, man. Jesus, the true representative of God, goes out and takes your punishment on himself so that he can forgive and love and welcome his unfaithful bride among his people. So what do you do when you read this story? You shudder and then you thank God that there's a faithful representative of God who gives of himself to save you even when you're unfaithful to him. The gospel is shining in stories like this, even if it's seen in negative, even if it's seen in the gaps in what's missing in the behavior of the characters in the story. This is not what God is like. That's what you're supposed to think. So what is he like? Well, you get to live on the other side of the cross and say, he's like a good, faithful husband who speaks kindly to his bride, welcomes her back, and dies to protect her. That's what God is actually like. And so we're going to take communion. And as we do, I want to invite you just to listen to the words of Jesus. Think about what a faithless husband looks like. And then look at what a good shepherd looks like. This is from John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. What does Jesus say? What's the good shepherd like? The sheep listen to his voice, he speaks kindly. And his sheep come to him. And then far from sending them out to suffer at the hands of the wolves and the thieves that destroy sheep, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down willingly. That's what God is like, brothers and sisters. What's the faithful representative of God? He's the one who rescues you from your unfaithfulness and dies to save you. Amen? I invite you guys to stand with me.